May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we all come here tonight with a certain picture in our minds about this Last Supper. It's a, a picture that shapes uh, how we imagine the scene as it plays out in the Gospel. Maybe for you, it's a picture like Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper, you know, like the table laid out from left to right and Jesus right in the middle. Maybe, let's see, is it still the same picture? Ah, yes. Maybe it's a picture like the front cover of your bulletin. We all have a picture that forms in our head as we listen to this reading tonight. I'm just going to take that off. I'm not using it, so I'll just leave it right there. Maybe we all have this picture that forms in our head as we listen to this reading tonight, and that picture is what forms our imagination as we listen to the story. But imagine this. Some New Testament scholars think that the disciples were perhaps quite a bit younger than we tend to imagine. Maybe they were even just teenagers. Just teenagers. So imagine Jesus at table with, like, the senior youth group, eating and drinking and feasting, this rowdy bunch of young men gathered around that table. And of course, wine is a traditional part of the Passover feast. So a rowdy, heady bunch of teenagers drinking throughout the evening. They're impulsive and fiery like Peter. They're vengeful like James and John, who, if you recall, wanted to call down heaven fire on the head of their opponents. They're unsteady, untrustworthy, unlost. That's Judas. These are not yet the venerable, steady, mature patriarchs of the church. This is this rowdy, heady bunch of teenage boys celebrating Passover together and drinking wine, remembering that night the triumph of their people and their God over an earlier empire. And they, too, have this picture in their heads about what is happening that night, what they're celebrating. And their picture is based, just like ours is, on what God has done in the past. And like us, they are looking for God to do something like that again. And so this weekend, as God acts right in front of them, they have a hard time recognizing it as it's happening. I reckon that it would have been a particularly rowdy celebration that night in that upper room. Passover, after all, is a great feast. And in Jerusalem those days, the city would have been filled with life. There would have been visitors from around the empire, Jewish pilgrims from every language and nation. The streets were filled with booths and merchants and the smells of the communal ovens, the unleavened bread baking from corner to corner, and the smell of roasting meat and all those delicious herbs, the noise of families taking their lambs. Imagine all the lambs, that's a lot of noise, all the way 
to the temple, and of course the wine merchants selling the wine for the feast. And underneath it all, this activity and these sights and sounds, underneath it all, this great, deep, joyous pride in the history of their people. How God had brought them up out of Israel, out of Egypt, thousands of years ago. Passover was a festival of memory, a fierce, defiant, proud remembering of when they had been freed, a defiant memory as they lived under the state terrorism of the Romans. And every year they remembered that time when God had made them free, and every year they longed for the possibility that God might do again what God had done once and raise up a Messiah who would liberate them from the hand of their Roman oppressors. But the Romans had been their oppressors for quite some considerable time now, 70 years or more. And so it had been this way at Passover, year in and year out, as long as anyone could remember. And suddenly this year, something was different. This year, rumors that a healer and miracle worker had been circulating for months. He'd been traveling around, word was getting around, the crowds were starting to gather. So the hearts of the people were kindled with this messianic hope this year. And the question as he rides into Jerusalem is, will it be this year that a Messiah is sent from God to liberate us from the Romans? Will it be this year? And here he comes. He is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, just like the prophet said that the Messiah would. And there's all these prophetic signs. It's exactly what we read in the prophets. Here he comes, and the people gather, and they are crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, Messiah. Save us, our king. Lead us to victory over our Roman oppressors. Lead us to battle against them, like David did of old, and we will follow. Hosanna! Save us! Surely, this year at Passover, we will see the Messiah at last. But the following week had been weird. It hadn't unfolded the way they all expected to. And as the week wore on, the people's confidence was really wavering. And you can see it in the Gospels, this confusion. Like, we thought we were on this track and the train is not running on these tracks at all. Like, is this Messiah? Why is he so passive? When would he rise up in triumph against the Romans? He showed no signs of doing so, and they couldn't recognize his behavior as meaning anything at all. And so as the week goes on, we see the people getting 
more confused, more frustrated. Steadily, we see their hearts are turning to disappointment. Who was this guy that we just welcomed on Sunday and we had all these high hopes about? And their hearts are turning to bitterness as the week goes on. But the disciples knew. The disciples, they knew it. They knew that Jesus was the one. They'd been walking this whole journey for him, but they'd had these conversations with him. They knew he was the Messiah. It was all going to be great. It was all going to be great. Somehow, they were sure he was going to surprise everybody and he would fulfill everybody's greatest expectations. So it's this rowdy Passover feast. That last night, as Jesus is sitting with his disciples, the senior youth group, drinking wine, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> These young men full of hopes and dreams and expectations about how is this all going to unfold? They're on pins and needles. How is this all going to unfold? But surely it means something. He's brought them to Jerusalem. They're full of eager, anxious anticipation for tomorrow. Tomorrow, right? The day begins at eventide. This is the first meal of the day. Tomorrow, the day of Passover, when surely Jesus, the Messiah, was going to show everyone what liberation would look like in their lifetimes. And then everyone would know. Tomorrow, tomorrow. And tonight, this rowdy, heady bunch of teenagers parties away. And there, in the midst of them, was Jesus. What was he feeling? Well, his mood had darkened as he made his way to Jerusalem. We can see that in the Gospels. He knew what it had meant that he came to Jerusalem now. And there in the midst of this rowdy party sat the one who had already begun betraying him, Judas, who was going to finish his work that very night. Jesus would pass that very night in the company of the, of the temple guards we can be sure that that was a pretty terrible night for him. And the next day, just a few short hours, he was going to be tortured and then crucified. He has less than 24 hours. I can't help but think that he was feeling rather somber at that last supper with his friends as they laughed and drank and partied around him, full of hopes and dreams. I think he couldn't help but love them for it, the senior youth group. But these are hopes and dreams and expectations he knows he is not gonna fulfill, not in the way that they imagined, not anything like it. And he had tried to prepare them for it, but you know, you can only do so much with hopeful young people. So there he sits in the middle of this party. 
And there, in the middle of this party, Jesus quietly stood up. He stepped back away from the candlelight on the table into the shadows around the outside of the room. And he stripped down like a slave. And like a slave, he took a bowl and he knelt at the feet of one rowdy teenager. And a stunned silence filled the room. And Jesus began in silence to wash this disciple's feet. They would have been lying on couches in Roman style, heads kind of a bit towards the middle, feet a bit towards the outside. He moved quietly from young man to young man on his knees, washing their feet like a slave with an intense, loving tenderness and uh, gravity no slave would have ever shown. And as he makes his way around the room, here he comes to dear, impulsive Peter. Well, I can only imagine that Peter liked to party. He seems like the type, that type of senior youth group member. I think that Peter was having a grand old time, enjoying wine, anticipating the triumph of tomorrow, like he was kind of like the right-hand guy, you know, the Messiah. And so often we see that Peter just can't quite get his head around stuff that Jesus is saying and meaning. I imagine that he is like really confused about what's going on. And now Jesus has come to his feet and Peter just can't work this out. Like everything has shifted. This was a party. Now we don't know what it is. There's all this gravity. There's all this silence. He's a teenage boy. You know, nothing lines up with his picture of how this story is supposed to go, how the Messiah is supposed to behave. And so Peter pulls his feet away from Jesus. Like, don't touch me. You can't wash my feet. This isn't right. This isn't right. I don't agree to this. He pulls away from Jesus' loving touch, from his tenderness, from his care. He pulls away from Jesus' ministry to him, from his messiahhood. Peter pulls himself away. And I imagine Jesus on his knees in the shadows of that room, stripped down like a slave, looking steadily up into young Peter's eyes, his wary, confused eyes, and laying a hand on Peter's shoulder. But Peter, he says, let me do this thing for you. What Jesus actually says is, unless you let me do this thing for you, you will have no share with me. 
letting Jesus do this thing for him is what it means in this moment for Peter to be a disciple. It is a requirement. Jesus demands his obedience. Let me do this for you in love. Jesus knows things that Peter can't know. He knew what the days ahead would cost in pain and despair for Peter and the others. That pain of having their dearest, proud, joyous hopes all dashed because they were wedded to an image of the Messiah that Jesus was never going to fulfill. And he gave them this gift of love to sustain them through that all. In fact, this gift of love is what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. How hard was it for Peter to let his feet, feet reach out back to Jesus and to leave his feet hanging there while he reclined on the couch and the Messiah knelt at his feet like a slave and washed his feet. It was almost beyond what Peter could do. How hard is it for us to receive this unmerited gift of love? He loves us beyond our uttermost. Jesus asks us to let him do this thing for us, all of it. He asks us to let him minister to us and teach us and lead us and raise us up as disciples. He asks us to let him strip down as a slave, to wash our feet with loving tenderness. He asks us to let him sacrifice his life for us in love, to do a thing that no one but him can do. To be a faithful disciple of Jesus is to let him do this for us in love, knowing that we can't do it by ourselves. Jesus asks us, like he asked Peter, to take a deep breath and accept the gift he gives us, love. A love which knows no bounds, a love which cannot be defeated, a love which will not be dissuaded by anything that we do or by anything that we fail to do, a love which bursts the bounds of how we think God acts and how we think the Messiah looks when he is revealed in glory. It is this love that defines Jesus as the Messiah, a love in the face of which we can do not but receive. This weekend, Jesus renews his gift of love for us for another year.
with such loving tenderness, our Lord and host invites us to take that deep breath and open our hearts and just receive. Receive his love just as he intends. Amen.